And to that, let us say amen. What a great opportunity that we have to sit under the feet of our great and gracious God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're at this time going to come and sit beneath his feet as he teaches us through his word. Let me have you take your Bibles out and remain standing. And I'm going to have you turn to Mark's Gospel and to chapter 14 this morning. And we'll be reading the first 11 verses this morning. That will be our reading, and that will be the text that we'll be looking at this morning. So follow along. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, and let us give heed to this reading because this is God speaking to us uh, through his inspired word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, we... Thank you for Christ. We thank you for this record of the life and ministry of Christ that we have before us this morning. And in this portion that we're going to be considering this morning, we we pray that you would bless our time. May we give good attention to the preaching of your word, and we ask that your spirit would work in us to illumine our hearts, to help us to see what you have for us in this passage this morning. Uh, Bless the one who preaches. Bless the ones who hear. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, we finally move uh, out of chapter 13. We were in chapter 13 for for quite a while, and we will be in chapter 14 for quite a while. But as we move from chapter 13 to 14 this morning, we move into a new section of Mark's gospel, really the final section of his gospel as we come to consider the arrest and the trials and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. We have together been through 13 chapters as Mark has presented 
Jesus as our chief prophet, sent by God, sent with the authority of God, sent to proclaim the word of God. He came, the very opening verses of the gospel said, he came proclaiming the gospel of God and preaching and teaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He came performing miraculous works that authenticated his authority in the things that he said. So 13 chapters of of considering Christ as our chief prophet. Well now, though, beginning this morning, we start to see Jesus specifically in a, a different light. We start to see him in his high priestly role as our high priest, as he prepares and will then fulfill his offering up to the Father, the one perfect sacrifice for sin, as the Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world, the sin of anyone and everyone who will come to faith in him. And Before, though, he is taken back into heaven and sits down at the right hand of God the Father as the reigning king over the church, uh, before that pinnacle of his glorification, before that comes the nadir, the the lowest depth of his humiliation. And this morning we will begin to follow that path towards that event. We've also talked about two reactions that have come, come forth about Jesus. Some have received him gladly and have honored him. And there are others who have despised him, rejected him. And those two reactions, which are really the only two reactions that one can have to the claims of Jesus... Those two reactions are laid before us this morning in this text that we're going to look at. Jesus has been revealing that that these things were going to happen, hasn't he? We've seen on several occasions that Jesus has told his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem, and there the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes and to the Gentiles, and that he will be mocked and beaten and ultimately killed, and on the third day to rise again. And now these things, these events, which have been and continue to be to the minutest detail, all part of the will of God since eternity past, they are about to be set in motion here in Jerusalem. This beginning of chapter 14, by the way, the longest chapter in Mark's gospel, it presents us, maybe you caught it as we read it, with one of of Mark's textual sandwiches that we have seen at several points throughout the gospel. A a beginning section where he speaks of one one topic, and here it's in verses 1 and 2, and then verses 10 and 11 at the end, both of those convey extreme hatred and malice towards Christ, while in between there, in that inner portion, it contains here an action of great love and devotion and a hint 
of an even greater love yet to be displayed. But before we get to the the sandwich portion of this, uh, let's look briefly at, and this will be our first point of four this morning, if you like to take notes, of the Passover and the plot to kill Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 14 begins by saying, It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. So Mark begins here his record of the events of the death and the resurrection of Christ by setting it in the context of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These two events, important events on the Jewish calendar, they follow one right after the other, and they're often referred to as one event. Sometimes the Scripture will talk about Passover, when it really is speaking of Passover and this feast. Passover was one day, and then this feast was for seven days after that. So the whole uh, complex was an eight-day period of time. Both of those things were instituted by God during one of the most important events in the history of God's people, going all the way back to the days of Moses in the Old Testament, recorded in the book of Exodus. God's people, remember, had been enslaved by the Egyptians for over 200 years, part of the over 400 years that were foretold to Abraham back in Genesis 15. And after those 200 years of of being under very harsh control by the Egyptians, God sent his servant, Moses, to command Pharaoh to let his people go in order that they might go and worship God. And you know the story that Pharaoh wouldn't and didn't and didn't and wouldn't, uh, despite nine different escalating plagues on the Egyptians brought upon them by God, as he hardened his heart over and over again and would not let the people go. And then finally, uh, God sent one more plague, the most dreadful of the plagues, the death of every firstborn in the land of Egypt. He said, from Pharaoh to the, the slave girl and the livestock in the nation. But God, you will remember, gave a command to Moses to give to the people of Israel, God's people, as a way for them to be spared when this took place, to spare them this fate of of the death of the firstborn. They were to, remember, and you know this again, they were to take a lamb, a lamb without blemish, and to slaughter it on on a given day, to take some of the blood of that lamb and to spread it on the door frame of their house. And God said, when the the angel of death comes through, he says, when I see that blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you or destroy you. He said, I will pass over you. That's where we get Passover. God therefore instituted the the feast of Passover, the day of Passover, the celebration as an annual remembrance of what God had done in order to bring his people out of bondage, in order to redeem them from the bondage that they had been in. And then in connection with that, again, in the book of Exodus, God instituted what was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
which began, as I said, the next day after the Passover celebration, and it ran for seven days. And that feast commemorated God bringing his people out and doing it so quickly and so powerfully with such speed that the people didn't even have time to leaven their bread. Exodus 12 tells us about that, a reminder of the faithfulness and of the might of God. And of course, as you go through the scriptures, you know that that the Bible draws a very strong connection between the redemption out of bondage of Egypt and the redemption from sin and from bondage to sin and, and the penalty of sin through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So tight is that connection that Jesus is referred to at one place as the Lamb of God. And at another place, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he is even called Christ, our Passover. And so therefore, there is, I think, nothing more fitting than to see the redemptive sacrifice of Christ play out in connection with the celebration of the Passover and the feast that accompanies it, that speaks, both of them, of redemption. And Mark tells us that the plot of the religious leaders to arrest and to kill Jesus is now taken up in earnest by them just two days before the Passover is to take place, which actually, according to the Jewish way of reckoning days, means that this event that we're going to look at this this morning takes place on Wednesday, or these events take place on Wednesday. Remember that long Tuesday that we saw is now past, and now a very important Wednesday. And on this Wednesday, the Jews, the leaders of the Jewish people began to, as I say, take up in earnest their plot to arrest and to kill Jesus. Though there's a problem there among those who are wanting to carry out this death, a problem, and that leads us, secondly, to the postponement in the plot to kill Jesus. Mark reminds us of the nefarious desire of the religious leaders to do away with Jesus. Notice here in the middle of verse 1 that it is the chief priests and the scribes who were seeking how to arrest him and kill him. The chief priests and the scribes, you'll remember from our, our look in chapters 11 and 12 that this is speaking of that Jewish high court known as the Sanhedrin. Those who were the leaders of the Jewish people, the leaders uh, of the religious leaders, that is their desire now. And it's been their desire for some time. Remember, we've, we've seen that way back in chapter 3 of, of Mark's gospel. They have been seeking a way to be rid of Jesus, this itinerant teacher and preacher who has threatened their comfortable place among the people by exposing their hypocrisy by coming and teaching with with such authority. Unlike the the, the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the day. And he's exposed their hypocrisy and their, their oppression, their ignorance of the scriptures. 
And now with Jesus' recent actions as he's come into Jerusalem and his, his actions in and around the temple that we've been looking at, his calling out their mistreatment and misuse of the temple, his so effectively answering all of their challenges and their questions that they've been bringing to him, by which we remember that they were not interested in gaining knowledge, but they were trying to trip Jesus up that they might find a reason to accuse him and to bring him before the, even the Roman authorities. And seeing the crowd so favorably disposed to Jesus as he came into town um, on that Palm Sunday and they proclaimed him to be the king, proclaimed him to be the Messiah. For all of those reasons now, the, the Sanhedrin is all the more determined to be rid of Jesus. And they want to arrest him and they want to kill him. Mark says so right here. But as the wicked witch of the West in the Wizard of Oz said, these things must be done delicately. And that was true here. So they realized that, that they must do it by stealth. And not during the feast, he says. This week-long feast that began the next day and then would run for the week. Remember the situation in Jerusalem at this time. Passover was a required pilgrimage. It was required for the, the men of, of, of Israel to come to this Passover, to come to this celebration. Women and children were, of course, welcome. And as a result of all of these people flooding into Jerusalem um, and the areas around it, the population of Jerusalem swelled to several times the normal number, causing people like Jesus and his disciples to have to stay outside of the city. Because as they came into town, well, as we'll be talking about in a few weeks here, there was no room for them at any of the inns in Jerusalem. But the population grows in the days before and during the eight days of this festival. And with the increased numbers of people kind of crowding into this area, with the increased sense of nationalism as people are celebrating this defining event of, of the people, and as a result of the generally positive evaluation of Jesus by the people who have heard him, trying to arrest Jesus in a public way during this time in Jerusalem would be ill-advised for the Sanhedrin. And so they, they recognize that and they say, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And so their plot must temporarily be put on hold until after the festival, unless some other option were to present itself. Meanwhile, outside the city, in the little town of Bethany up on the Mount of Olives, a group of people have gathered for a meal. And there we, we now we get to the filling of the sandwich, and we get to the, our third point, which is the preparation for the death of Jesus. So here's the filling of, of Mark's textual sandwich here. He, as we've seen him do so often, leaves off that direct topic that he started with and writes of a separate but related topic. 
And here we see, in stark contrast to what we just read is on the minds of the scribes and the chief priest, that a feast of another kind is underway here in the middle of this passage. And Jesus is at this meal. In fact, though Mark in his brief way of writing here does not include this fact, John tells us as he records the same incident that this dinner is specifically being given for Jesus, to honor Jesus. And it takes place in Bethany. Remember Bethany. Bethany is the home of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, whom Jesus had earlier raised from the dead. In fact, it's very likely that that is what prompted this dinner. But it's held, we're told, not at the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, but the text tells us here in verse 3 that it is held in the house of Simon the leper. How would you like that to be your name? Not a pleasant name. But Simon was a very, very common name. Peter, his real name was Simon. Um, Since they didn't have last names like we do today, they had to differentiate. So you will hear, you know, so-and-so of this, Jesus of Nazareth, to separate, to distinguish him from other Jesuses. That was another very common name. But this one is Simon the leper. This Simon apparently had been a leper. He, at some point, had suffered from leprosy. He didn't have it now. He wouldn't have been able to host such a shindig at his home if he did. Is it too much of a stretch to think that Jesus had healed him from his leprosy? I don't think it is. We're not told that, but it would make sense. Perhaps that's why this is being given at Simon's home. Of the other people who are there, Martha, a lady named Martha, John John tells us, served at the meal. Martha of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And if you know Martha, you know this is a perfect thing for her to do. Remember that when Jesus was at their home earlier, that Martha was so busy and running around uh, that she couldn't even stop for a moment and sit at Jesus' feet because uh, Luke 10, 40 says that she was distracted with much serving. That's her gift. And she, and she was, was exercising it then, and now here she's able to put those talents to use. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord gives us opportunity to exercise and to use the gifts and the talents that he has given to us? So maybe... That was the arrangement. Maybe Simon, Simon will have this at your house, but Martha will, will cook the meal. Maybe that's the arrangement. Whatever the case was, Jesus is here. Mark says he was reclining at table or reclining at the table. That's a very first century way of saying he was eating dinner. He was there. At this time, people didn't sit in chairs to eat. Uh, meals, they would sort of sit on the floor and recline on one side uh, at, a, at a lowered table, like a U-shaped table very often. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is there having a meal. When suddenly, our text tells us, a woman comes up. 
Again, Mark leaves this woman anonymous. She is just the woman, a woman. But John, in his telling of this, tells us that this woman was Mary, Martha's sister, Lazarus's sister, that she is there. Remember, she is the one earlier that just sat at Jesus' feet and enjoyed being there with him. So let's look then at the event that happens here, and and we're going to look at at three different uh, reactions to this or or sections of this. We're going to look at first what the woman did. She has with her, verse 3 tells us, an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. Now, the important thing is what's on the inside. Nard here, pure nard or spike nard. That was a, a very costly oil, perfumed oil, a prefer, perfumed ointment. It was made and imported all the way from India in sealed containers. It was extremely valuable. It was extremely expensive. The text here tells us that it was worth 300 denarii. Now, we've talked about the denarius uh, before, that that was equivalent to, to one day's pay for a general laborer. So this flask of nard would be worth about a full year's salary. That's its worth. And she brings it. She approaches Jesus, apparently uninvited. He didn't call her over. It's actually quite a bold action for a woman in that culture, though Jesus, of course, welcomed anyone. And our text says that she proceeds to break the flask. Uh, rendering it not resealable. She didn't take the cork out. She broke it open. And then she pours this expensive oil, perfumed oil, over Jesus' head. Verse 3 tells us. Now, some have pointed out what they portray as a contradiction here between what Mark says and John's record because John records that she poured it on the feet of Jesus. But, of course, one does not preclude the other. If she came over and and Jesus stood when she came over from reclining, uh, when she approached, uh, this large volume of, of perfumed oil would certainly have run down Jesus' head onto his clothing and surely dripped onto his feet. Or if he remained in his reclined position, which uh, according to, I think it's Matthew, it seems to, to be the case, she could have begun at his head and just poured it all the way down onto his feet. So it's not a contradiction. It's just John focusing on something different than what Mark focuses on. But it is a bold move, and certainly a move that caused every head to turn, Every conversation to cease, as John says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It was not only bold for Mary, it was also a great sacrifice for her to do what she did, certainly financially. Again, this is a very costly container of very costly perfume in an alabaster flask. Alabaster was sort of a a soft stone that could be carved and was often used to make containers for such things. 
Uh, so all of this was very, was very costly financially. It also cost her probably a certain amount of, of dignity, her just sort of butting in and, and interrupting the meal to do this, especially once we see the reactions that we're going to see, uh, certainly could have been embarrassing for her. And it brings up a, a couple of questions. First of all, what did she intend by doing this? What was she trying to, to, to do, to say? What was in this woman's mind as she anointed Jesus uh, probably from head to toe with this very costly ointment? Her thoughts could have been, could have been just cultural. Uh, it, it was normal practice to anoint the head of a guest of honor at a meal. Though if that was her intent, she went overboard a little bit. Uh, it could also have been with a, a messianic purpose, right? Kings in the Old Testament were anointed with oil as a sign of, of their, their office, as a sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon them to en enable them to do what they're called to do. It was a, a sign that was done to kings when they became kings. So she could have been making a statement demonstrating the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one to come in the line of the king of David and to rule over his people. There could have been a messianic connection with that oil being poured as, as the kings were anointed in the Old Testament. But as appropriate as that would have been, none of the Gospels make any mention of, of any messianic intent or flavor to this. So I don't think that's it. The third thing that could have been in her mind is just to honor the Lord. I think that's what we see here. This seems to be her intent. Perhaps, again, in gratitude for what Jesus had done in raising Lazarus, this woman, Mary, simply wanted to, well, to pour out her thanks upon Jesus, whom she loved, whom she followed. She was a disciple of Jesus. So this seems to be, this, this extravagant show here is an expression of her devotion to Christ. It was an act of love to Christ. And a beautiful picture of devotion it is. I mean, as she, as she breaks open this flask to do this, she dedicates in that action all of it to Christ. So it's a picture of not just sincere, but of complete devotion and love. Beauty of her act is, is very clear on the surface here of the text, but the beauty of her act is also unbelievably contrasted by the reaction of the next group. We'll call them the disciples. Look at verses 4 and 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Now Mark leaves that very general. He just said there were some who said among themselves. By the way, when he says that they said it among themselves, that they were muttering among themselves, as, as we've seen, well, Jesus' disciples do. And that makes sense because Matthew mentions the disciples, particularly as the mutterers. John singles out one, Judas, as the one who said this. 
or instigated this. So clearly the reaction was, was general, but the wording was probably Judas's. And the reaction was very strong, stronger than what we sort of pick up from the English here. The word indignant uh, at the beginning of verse 4 and the word scolded at the end of verse 5 are very strong words. They went after this woman verbally. They turned on her in anger. There's one commentator that compares their response to the snorting of a bull on the attack. Why was the ointment wasted like that? Now, even that shows, shows how far short the disciples are still coming to understanding what's going on. Now, even if the woman's expression of love to Christ was over the top. To any Christian, you, you would think it would hardly be considered, what's the word, a waste. Sometimes it makes me think of what quality of service we often give to our Lord and to his people and to his church. And at what point do we think, why give my time, why give my quality time. Well, I give my finances, my efforts, they, they could be better spent somewhere else. Why waste my best on the church and on the service of Christ in the church? Sometimes I think that's our, our attitude. We sort of hold back the best for ourselves. Why did she waste that on Jesus? This ointment could have been sold for a year's wages and, and given to the poor. Now, John, again, in his, in referencing Judas as the speaker here, he reveals what is really in the betrayer's heart, in Judas's heart, which was not anything so pious as a concern for the poor. In fact, John says in John 12, 6, that he, Judas was not concerned about the poor. It says, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Who mind if we put another year's wages into the coffer, well, there might be more for me. So the men, the disciples, led by Judas, goes after this woman for her good deed. Which leads us then to the reaction of Jesus. Because Jesus immediately steps in and comes to the woman's rescue in verses 6 and 7. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now, we need to be clear, Jesus' statement here is not in any way to imply that the poor are unimportant or that caring for the poor is unimportant in any way, that it's wrong to care for them, or that even in any other circumstance, that it wouldn't be virtuous to sell the perfume and give the, the proceeds to the poor. But the point is, and what Jesus is saying here, is that in this case, at this time, it is better that she has done this because the time for doing it, for doing any kindness to Jesus, is growing very short. He says, you always have the poor with you, which is true. The Bible says that. You always have the poor. Jesus says you can always, 
and should always do good for them. And we should do good for the poor. And the church has always led the way for caring for the destitute, the widows and the orphans and the underprivileged. But here Jesus says, you won't always have me. She has done this for me, which is a rare commodity because of what is about to happen. Her opportunity and theirs to express love and devotion and honor to Jesus is running or is very limited. But then Jesus says something which was not even in the mind of Mary. I think we can be sure. When she poured this expensive, aromatic, perfumed oil on Christ's head and even down to his feet. You know, we've discussed what she might have been thinking, but Jesus now reveals what the intent of God was in providentially bringing this about and that it's far greater. Look at verse 8 with me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She has done what she could. She's done a beautiful thing. She's gone above and beyond. It's interesting to notice that no one else will do anything similar, will show Christ any similar love until after his death. But she has done it. She has done what she could to honor Christ. That in and of itself is important. Let's each of us ask ourselves that as Christians, redeemed by the grace of God, saved by the work of Christ. What can we do to honor Christ, who is so worthy of all honor? What can we do to not just say we love Jesus, but to show that we do? What can we do? The Bible says we can trust him, we can believe him, we can serve him, we can obey him, we can worship him, we can honor him in all that we do. But this woman has not only done what she could, but she has done much more than she even intended. Jesus says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She has performed a, a symbolic act of preparation for the upcoming death of Christ. When a, when a body, when a person died, one part of the actions would be that they would anoint them with oil, and then they would put spices and, and wrap them, um, wrap the bodies. And Jesus is saying, that's what she has done. She has anointed my body for burial. She has performed this act of, of preparation for the death of Christ that hasn't even happened yet. You know, in the rush to bury Jesus' body after the crucifixion, but before the, the soon coming Sabbath began at sundown, no one was able to perform this service to Christ, to anoint his body after, until Sunday morning, right? When, and when the women go to do that, to anoint his body on Sunday morning, oh, they're ready to do it, but gloriously, that's no longer an issue. Because as the angel said, he's not here. He's risen, just as he said. 
And she has poured out this valuable perfume upon the Lord. She has demonstrated her love to Christ in doing so. But it is he who will very soon demonstrate his love for us by pouring out his precious blood for us and for her. But Jesus says, she's anointed my body beforehand for burial. I'm sure that the disciple is like, whoa, what? This is another one of those jaw-dropping statements from Jesus. How, how do you think it would be received by his disciples? We don't know. It doesn't say. But the beautiful picture of, of honor and devotion is itself for us, beloved, a reminder of the supreme act of love to be rendered by Christ within the next two days from when this takes place. And so Jesus says, she's anointed my body beforehand. She has done a great act for me, not a waste. She has done a great act in preparation for the great act that Jesus will do. And then Jesus assures the disciples of the importance of, of this act of honor given to Christ by telling them that it will not be forgotten. Even to the, the end of the age, verse 9 says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And since that time, as churches have countless times throughout the centuries, we are retelling it today. Now, the mention then here of the, the burial of Christ sort of shocks us back to the plot of the religious leaders that Mark started with, who are looking for a way to, to approach the arrest of Jesus, how to do it delicately. And I said that they were going to have to wait until the, the festival was over unless something else presented itself. Well, suddenly here, the answer is dropped into their laps. Which brings us to the fourth point, progress in the plot to kill Jesus. Mark returns in verses 10 and 11 to what he was talking about at the beginning, the, the, the plot to kill Jesus. He returns here to the, the chamber of the chief priests as they are gathered. And we read in verse 10 that then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Notice that it is Judas who was one of the twelve. All four of the gospel writers use that phrase all the time to speak about Judas, particularly seven times to remind us that the betrayer of our Lord was one who knew him best, one who traveled with him, one who heard his teaching, one who had been called by Jesus to be not just a disciple, but an apostle. Saw his miracles, participated in the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus sent off his, his disciples, his apostles, to go and to preach the gospel and to cast out demons and to do miracles, Judas was right along there with them doing it. He was one of the twelve. See, familiarity with Christ does not guarantee devotion to Christ. And that's shown here. 
The psalmist, remember, wrote in Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That's Judas. And we'll talk more about him. But Mark is very specific about why he went to the chief priests. He did it in order, with malice aforethought, to betray Jesus to them. Think of this. Really throughout this whole section, this whole chapter that we're going to be in, that it was not the notorious sinners of the day who killed Jesus, but it was the leaders of the church, the religious leaders, and one of his closest companions who did it. So my, what a a contrast to the filling of this sandwich we've seen. What a contrast from the act of love and devotion of the woman to the base, evil, demonic actions of betrayal. And Mark tells us in verse 11 that when they heard it, that Judas was ready to betray Jesus for money. When they heard it, they were glad. I'm sure they were. See, here's their way out. Here's their way to get Jesus and get rid of Jesus. The chief priests were glad. This was the answer. Maybe they wouldn't have to wait till after the Passover. They were glad. Judas was glad. He loved money more than he loved Jesus, and he was going to get some. And, of course, there was one more who was glad that night. Satan was glad. He thought, maybe I have a chance here. And as the sun sat on that Wednesday evening, Judas, the text says, began to seek an opportunity to betray the Lord of life. But as we close this morning, let us never forget that none of this was outside of God's control. But it was all playing out according to the eternal plan of God, that Christ might come, that Christ might die, and that Christ might be raised so that you, Christian brother and sister, might live. Let's pray. Father, amazing words we see this morning. Amazing devotion, amazing love, and amazing hatred. Amazing evil who would kill the Lord of life. We pray, Father, that we would find ourselves in this middle section. That we would not deny Jesus, we would not ignore Jesus, we would not betray the the words of Christ, but that we would demonstrate our devotion, that we would demonstrate thankfulness for what Christ has done for us, that we would do what we can in gratitude for what he has done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.